amount of extra time they put in to serve us every single week, getting here two hours, sometimes more earlier. And obviously, I know they would want all the praise to go to the one we sing to, but also good to give honor where honor is due. And thanks to the adults for serving us every single week, week in and week out. Find uh, the book of Leviticus, continuing through this book. And I know a lot of people think, I've even had some people in the community going, what are you doing preaching through the book of Leviticus? And I'm like, well, it's not, my first thought is, well, it's not the same old sermon about David and Goliath. We all know the ending to that, right? But it's also because all of God's word has been given to us, is useful for us, is applicable to us, and is so important. God desires to speak to us through all of his word. And whole Bibles make whole Christians. And we want to be whole Christians following after our Savior. Find Leviticus chapter 4 and 5. And I just want to review a little last week and set up this passage for us. Last week, we started Leviticus considering the general offerings. Things called the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Both the burnt and the peace offering required animals to be sacrificed, filleted, and burned on the altar. The grain offering, they would offer of their grain, they would bake it basically on the fire, these pancake or waffle sort of things, and they would share them in the tabernacle with the priests. And each of these uh, sacrifices taught us a lesson from last week. The burnt offering taught us about the importance of preparation in worship. The burnt offering was a catch-all. They would often combine it with a lot of other offerings in, uh, in the Levitical days. Uh, the grain offering was an offering of appreciation for God's gifts. They were to give out of their first fruits and give back a portion of what God had given to them. The peace offering was very much like the burnt offering and that they offered an animal and they burned it, but it was meant to symbolize fellowship and peace between God and man. The fat of the animal was removed and burned, and the offerer and the priest enjoyed some of the offerings. But ultimately, what we should think about as we think about these offerings is it's meant to be a picture of our Christian life. Paul writes that we are all to be a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. God would have us to lay our lives on the altar and offer up to him the pleasing aroma of our lives. And these sacrifices ultimately point to Jesus. His death on the cross is the sacrifice that brings perfect communion and peace with God. And this week I want us to consider the last two offerings, which are pretty closely related, the sin and the guilt offerings. And rather than being for general purposes, both of these are related to very particular circumstances. What were God's people to do when they blow it? When they sin, when they break God's law. Leviticus 4, 1 to 5.13 deals with the sin offering. And Leviticus 5.14 to 6.7 <coughs> speaks of the guilt offering. And both, if you were to read the chapter together and look at it required the death of a sacrifice, the spreading of blood by the priest, the animals flayed, the fat separated, and it's burned on the altar, much like the others. 
And the one difference is if you look at the guilt offering, they were to also, with their animal, bring restitution for the one who is sinned against. Both of these offerings dealt with sin among the nation, and they teach us one main idea I want us to see this morning. Here's the main idea. Not all sin is the same. Now, that might go a little countercultural to what some people have been told, but the Bible would tell us that not all sin is the same. Now, all sin is still sin. All sin brings death and judgment to us, but it would be very unwise and unfair, I think, to flatten out all sin and make it exactly the same. One, this can lead to some very bad thinking and bad conclusions. There are people that think, well, if lust is the exact same as adultery, wouldn't it just be better if instead of struggling with this lust problem, I just left my life? Well, of course not, right? Obviously, an act of adultery, someone leaving their family is far worse than lust. Or if somebody was, man, I just really hate this guy. I know the Bible says it's a sin, and I can't stop hating him, so why not just kill him? Obviously, those are not the same thing. We shouldn't flatten out all sins, because there are certain sins that are worse than others. The taking of human life is far worse than other sins, just like all crimes are not the same. Yet, as we'll see this morning, Though all sins are not the same, all do have the same solution. And forgiveness is available for any and all sins that you have committed. The sin and guilt offering teach us about the nature of sin. And through these chapters, we're given five questions to ask to measure sort of the severity or the uniqueness of our sin. Five questions to ask ourselves. And let's start with the first question. First question is, how did I sin? How did I sin? Look at how Leviticus chapter 4 opens up. Look at this, Leviticus 4.1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands. All of chapter 4 and 5 deal with unintentional sin. That is sin done by mistake, oversights and judgment, sin committed in ignorance, sin done because they either did not know the law or did not know at the time they were breaking the law. Leviticus 5.17 offers a helpful definition. If anyone sins doing any of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, Though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Now it's important to notice that unintentional sin is still sin. Sin is not defined by our knowledge of it, or even our feeling guilty because of doing it. Sin is sin. But it is important to consider if someone acted with intent or not. We all know the difference between accidental and intentional acts. We've all driven on I-24. And you pull on, right? It's easy just to get cruising when you're going to Nashville or Paducah. And it's not hard to get up to 80 or 85 driving through there without fully realizing what you're doing. And if you're just cruising along, it's not hard to speed. And whether you intend to or not, if you're speeding, the officer is going to clock you going 80 and he's going to pull you over. And he's going to give you a ticket. Ignorance of the law is no excuse for breaking it. Yet we also know there's a massive difference between unintentionally speeding 
a car chase, swerving in and out of lanes, and certainly it's miles away from the greatest traffic crime imaginable, not using your blinker. Amen? Right? Friends, unintentional sins are sins done without knowledge or awareness, at least in the moment. Sadly, in a fallen world, sin is everywhere, and this will often happen without intent. Maybe this has happened to you. I know this has happened to me. You're in a conversation with somebody. You feel good. You speak open. You're able to speak openly a little bit, and you just let something slip about somebody that you should have never shared. And you're like, oh. And you don't even catch it at the moment. You don't even realize it until you get back to the car, and you're driving home, and you're thinking, really? Why did I say that? Why did I share that piece of information? Unintentional, but still a sin. It's interesting as you read through Leviticus 4 and 5, the only thing explicitly mentioned in this chapter is unintentional sins. And as I studied this week, there's lots of opinions about other types of sins, particularly intentional sins. There were actually some folks who argued that because Leviticus doesn't mention a sacrifice for intentional sin, that that means there isn't one. I don't think that's correct. I actually think chapter 6, verse 1 to 3, probably speaks about intentional sins and forgiveness is available there. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins, notice he doesn't say unintentional, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or he has oppressed his neighbor and has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely at any of the things that people do and sin thereby. Notice this seems pretty intentional. You've got a plan to deceive and keep something back for yourself. The book of Numbers, chapter 5, repeats this and says it this way. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel when a man or woman commits any sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and the person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, giving it to him whom he the wrong. So I think that's talking about intentional sin, and intentional sin can be forgiven. And if that isn't enough, later on in the book of Leviticus, you read about the Day of Atonement, where the high priest offers up a sacrifice, and it's said that on that day, all sin of the repentant are forgiven. Every single sin. So there's intentional sin, there's unintentional sin, and both can be forgiven through faith by sacrifice, but intent still matters. But what's super interesting is throughout the Bible, the warning is not actually about unintentional or intentional sin. They give a warning about something called high-handed sin. Let me show you this over in the book of Numbers, chapter 15. Book of Numbers, chapter 15. After speaking about unintentional sin, we read this. Numbers 15, 30 to 31. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Friends, this is the sort of sin that looks directly at God's commands and says, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I want. 
This is direct disobedience, and in the Old Covenant, it led to getting cut off. This might even be the attitude of presumptuous sins. That says, well, if God's just going to forgive me, let me keep on sinning that grace may abound. This is bold, flagrant, hands-on sin. And I think the reason that Numbers 15 puts the emphasis there is because everyone's going to sin, even unintentionally, but he's warning as you're wandering against getting too close to the cliff. Against getting too close. Friends, the line between intentional and heavy-handed sin is not that far. So it might be good to stay back from that edge as far as you can. We're not even told exactly what the difference is. But he warns us against going there. Friends, all of us are going to step in the mud by accident. Some of us are going to think and step in the mud intentionally, thinking it might not be that deep. But the warning is, don't go rolling around in it, in the mud of sin. Intention matters. And as we think about sin, both our sin and the sins of others, we need to think about how did they do it. Did they do it unintentionally? Did they do it intentionally? Or did they do it with a high hand, not even caring that they pursued it and did it? But Leviticus would have us ask a few more questions. There's a second question. Who did the sinning? Who did the sinning? If you read through Leviticus 4, it talks about a variety of different people coming to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Look at verse 3. If the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people. Verse, uh, verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally. Verse 22, when a leader sins, doing unintentionally any of the things that by the commandment of the Lord is God about to be done. Verse 27, if any of the common people sins unintentionally. Did you notice that though sin reaches every single person and every single position, it would have you still consider who was sinning. Was it a common person? Were they a religious leader or a political leader among the nation? It says in the case of the priests, if they sinned, the people bore the guilt with them. Everyone sins, but not everyone's sin is exactly the same. In fact, the Bible would warn to whom much is given, much is required. The letter of James warns that teachers in the church will face a stricter judgment. The sin of the priests in Israel called, caused problems for the nation time and time again. The sin is a very trickle-down sort of thing. It starts at the top, and it often will trickle down to the bottom. I think we all recognize this to one level or another. In Leviticus 4, we're reminded that even the priests had to bring a sacrifice for their sins. The leaders went through basically the same process as the common people. They had to bring their offering to the tent. They had to place their hands on it, kill it, spread the blood, fillet it, and put it up in smoke. Whether priest or pauper, the tent of meeting stood open for all. And yet... The Bible would still have us consider who's doing the sinning. Are they Joe Schmo? 
Sin is serious for him, but other people may not be directly impacted by his sin. Think about the amount of scandal that we see when a prominent leader, whether a religious leader in a church or denomination, or a political national figure commits a, a scandal of a sin, the ripple effects that it has far beyond their life. We've seen that, that prominent sin makes for prominent impact. It can lead even whole congregations into sin, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So the warning here is upon leaders that pastors bear a certain responsibility for how they lead their congregations. Presidents, political leaders bear a certain responsibility for how they lead the nation. Mothers and fathers, you bear a certain responsibility for how you lead your families. And this is a warning to us that, friends, we're often concerned about the wrong sort of sin. We should be concerned about all sin, but so often we want to talk about the sins of the world but never deal with the sins of the ones to whom much has been given. Let's deal with the sin inside the church. We love to pick on the sins of others but never consider ourselves. How is how I'm living impacting others? Not all sin is the same. How might your sin be impacting others because of your position? The chapter wants us to consider all sides of the sin equation, not just who is sinning, but also the third question, who is being sinned against? Who is being sinned against? Against. You know, for, for chapters that talk a lot about sin, we don't get any specific examples until chapter 5. Let me show you a few of the things we're talking about. Chapter 5, verse 1. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. He says, hey, if you were a witness to the crime and you're able to come and testify to the truth, it says you've got an obligation to do so. To testify to the truth for the good of your neighbor and so that justice may be done. This person may have failed to go unintentionally. Maybe they forgot the court date. Maybe they failed to go because they were scared of their own prosecution. Or maybe they didn't go because they didn't care about truth and justice. Regardless, we're called to stand up for the needs of others. In verse 2 and 3 of chapter 5, he goes over sins relating to ceremonial uncleanliness. We'll put that on a shelf and come back to that in a couple weeks. But he also says that while you're sinning, if you don't speak up when you want to, you also can sin when you speak too quickly. Chapter 5, verse 4. Where if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these things. He wants against making rash oaths, whether to God or to others, because both your integrity and others are impacted when you don't follow through. In fact, the Bible would tell you it's better just to not make an oath. Y'all know that. Y'all heard kids that go, well, I swear I'm going to get that done. That's most likely the thing they're not going to get done, right? Because if you have to back it up with lots of words, that means you're probably not the most trustworthy person to get it done in the first place, right? The Bible would say just don't make an oath if you can't do it, if you're not going to follow through with it. 
Look what we recall what we read in chapter 6, verse 1. Look what he says. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor and found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, and any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. He wants us to notice that sin is multi-directional. All sin is horizontal. We sin against God when we break his law. And we are people made in his image to reflect who he is and what he's like. And so when we sin, we're saying that God is like that sin and he isn't like that, right? So every sin is against God, but sin is also horizontal sin against neighbor. Leviticus 5 and 6 shows us this. When we breach faith against the Lord by oppressing and robbing our neighbor, by not standing up for others when we can't, sin goes upward against God and outward against our neighbor. And the Bible even warns you can sin against yourself. The Apostle Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality, for every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so here's the point that we need to see. Sin always hurts someone, even when that someone is you. Sin, one, has an impact on your relationship with God, because you're not listening to Him Sin has an impact on others when we steal and lie and hurt others. And sin has an impact on ourselves. Sin is always against God, but it always impacts others, even in ways that we may not see at first. And because of that, friends, not all sin is equal. It has bigger impacts when it impacts a, a huge group of people. Have you ever considered how God views your sin? Have you ever considered how others might be impacted by things that you don't think is that big of a deal? How your spouse or your family might be hurt by your anger? How your infidelity might impact your spouse and your children? Has your sin created habits that have created chains of addiction for future generations? Sin impacts more than just yourself. And sin impacts more than just you and your relationship with God. Sin impacts all of us. How have you sinned? Was it intentional? Was it heavy-handed? Does, who, who, does who you are make your sin more far-reaching? And who have you sinned against? This brings us to the fourth question, and this is so important. How did I respond to my sin? How did I respond to my sin? Because let me tell you, inadvertently, you're going to sin. You'll probably sin before you go to bed tonight. I know I probably will, at least hopefully unintentionally, right? Because none of us are perfect. But the question to consider is, what will we do when we sin? Notice that when they brought the sacrifice, Leviticus 5, 5 and 6, notice what they did along with the sacrifice. When he realizes his guilt in any of these things, he confesses the sin he has committed. He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he has committed a female from his flock 
a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Let me say something maybe a little countercultural. Guilt is not always a bad thing. Guilt is not always a bad thing. Now, our culture would tell you that guilt is the result of social programming. It's just kind of what the culture's told you, and you need to numb that, you need to reject that, you need to ignore that, but guilt is the proper response to sin. Now, guilt by itself will never cause you to live differently. It doesn't have that power to do that, but it can help you diagnose when something is wrong and help you find a solution. Guilt is like a check engine light. It would encourage you to check under the hood. Because let me tell you something. A check engine light isn't going to encourage you to drive any differently. It might not even change where you're going to drive that day. But it should hopefully encourage you to stop and look under the hood. To look inside before you end up broke down on the side of the road. And we know this. The longer you drive with the check engine light on, the less of an impact that it has on you. Right? I've driven 50,000 miles with this light on. Obviously, it's nothing wrong, right? You'll just keep on going. But if you get under the hood at the front end, you'll know for sure what to do next. If you were to drive a day that nice car, we've got a check engine light on, and it's a sensor. We know. We've looked at it. It's a, it's a sensor. Don't feel the need to, to fix that. But it could be a sensor, friends. It could be a leak. Until you check under, you won't know. Guilt will never help you live better on its own, but it can cause you to look under the hood and make necessary next steps. Guilt can lead to mercy. Did you notice what Israel did? When they brought their animals to the tent, they had to recognize their sin, repent of it, and rely on the mercy of God, then walk away seeking to live renewed and to restore what was lost. In fact, the guilt offering has also been called the restitution offering because it calls for something beyond the sacrifice. Look over at chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. We see this. If he has sinned and realizes his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it to them, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Friends, oftentimes repentance is going to require restitution. It's going to require to give back plus some what has been lost, to restore what has been stolen plus a fifth. Plus 20%. You know, the old saying is true. You broke it, you bought it. But the Bible would say you broke it, you bought it, plus 20%. Now, you may think, maybe you remember our sermons from Exodus, and you're going to put up your hand and go, well, Pastor Matt, Exodus 22 says that a thief has to restore five times what was stolen. That if they steal an ox, they got to bring five oxes in its place. Yet Leviticus says you offer a fifth above the thing stolen. Check me. Bible's not true. Right? Is it 500% or is it 120%? And to that I would respond, Leviticus is offering a reduced restitution for those who come forward and confess their sin and make it right. 
Exodus 22 is saying it's five times more if you get caught and you don't confess it. So here, here's a lesson. There's a spiritual lesson in that. It is always better to own your sin, rectify your wrongs, than to hunker down and remain obstinate. An unwillingness to admit your wrong will always cost you five times more than a simple confession would have. There's a spiritual principle there. How did you respond to your sin? Did you come forward, confess it, seek to make it right, apologize, repent, and walk away seeking to do better? Or did you just go, I've never done anything wrong in my life? Or did you go on the old path of Adam where he said, well, you know, you made me do it. Do you own your sin? Do you turn away from it? Have you paid your dues and restored what was hard? Because sin that is repentant of is ultimately sin no one should be holding against you. And sin that is repentant of is ultimately sin that is forgiven. And friends, sin that is repentant of and forgiven is not the same as sin that is unrepentant of and unforgiven. In fact, that's the last question I want us to consider. Has my sin been forgiven? How did I sin? Who was the one that did the sinning? Were they in a place of prominence where that trickled down to others? Who was being sinned against? Did they hurt other people in the process? How did they respond to their sin? And has their sin been forgiven? Because if God doesn't hold it against you, neither can anyone else and neither should you. Repeated over and over and over again in this chapter, whether it be unintentional sin or otherwise, we'll read this, Leviticus 4.20. This he shall do with the bull, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and they shall be forgiven. The priest shall make atonement through the giving of a sacrifice. And the incredible news in Leviticus chapter 5 is that forgiveness is open to everyone. If you're able to bring a bull or a lamb, God will receive it. Chapter 5, verse 7 says if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could bring two turtle doves. And verse 11 says if you couldn't afford even two turtle doves, you could bring a small amount of flour. It's at a tenth of an ephah, about three pounds or so of flour. And here is the promise to anyone who turns and trusts in God's promise. Leviticus 6, 7. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven of any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. And the incredible news, it wasn't the offerings themselves that forgave them. We talked about that last week. It wasn't as if the giving of animal life was a substitute for human life. It wasn't even that the priest had some sort of authority to just go, your sins are forgiven. No, friends, how they were saved through this whole thing was through faith in the mercy and the promise of God received through faith. Faith is an open hand taking hold of God's extended forgiveness. And the sacrifices were just a shadow of a greater sacrifice to come. Did you notice in our opening reading in Psalm 19, David declares, hey, God, declare me innocent of hidden faults, unintentional sins, and keep me from presumptuous sin. All sin, God is able to forgive.
forgive and give us power over. And in fact, the prophet Isaiah would come along 700 years later with the promise of a greater sacrifice. He would tell us about a perfect priest who would give a perfect sacrifice. Isaiah 53, verse 10. This is a little bit beyond where people stop reading, right? He was crushed for our iniquities, crucified for our sins. And then it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, a guilt offering. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. This servant, the suffering servant, he would become a guilt offering. He would die, yet the scripture says his days would be prolonged. Friends, he's a sacrifice who would not be burned up on the altar. He's a sacrifice who would live forever and offer eternal forgiveness to all who turn to him. Friends, Jesus has become our sin and guilt offering. And rather than stay dead, he has ascended. Three days later, he rose again from the dead to empty sin, death, and hell of its power. And today, forgiveness stands open, full and free. And friends, it costs even less than three pounds of flour. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whosoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Faith is free, and it can receive a gift of eternal value. And let me just say something, because there may be many today who I know are caught in sin of some sort. The only sin that you can defeat is forgiven sin. And the only sin that has true power over your life is sin that is uncontested, unrepented of, and unrestored. And friends, ultimately, the only sin that can get a foothold in your life is unforgiven sin. So why are you holding them back? Confess them and bring them to Jesus. Because while all sin is not the same, all sin has the same solution. The Apostle John would remind us of this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you say, Pastor, this sermon wasn't about me, sorry, it was about you, it was about me, it was about all of us, right? And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is one of the things people often hear confess and they think a box with a priest, a guy with a collar listening to it. Friends, the incredible thing is, yeah, you're able to confess directly to God. But the incredible thing, too, is the Bible says there's a power in confessing to another person. Not because there's a certain person with power to forgive you, but that all of us are able to offer the assurance of the gospel. If you confess your sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a high priest with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
Jesus accomplished what sacrifices could only foreshadow full, free forgiveness of sin. Not all sin is the same, but Jesus died to forgive all sin of all kinds. Maybe you've come in today and you've come to realize there's lots of unintentional sin in your life. Atonement is available. Maybe you can recount ways you've intentionally broken faith with the Lord this week. Friends, the good news, the lamb has already been offered in your place. Maybe you would describe your life as heavy-handed rebellion and you feel too far gone. Hear the invitation to turn around. It isn't too late. The heavenly tent of meeting is still open and you're still breathing. And the high priest stands ready to receive you, to forgive you, and to cleanse you of your sin. Not all sin is the same, but all sin has the same solution. May we realize our guilt, repent of our sin, and run to Jesus to find a fountain of cleansing for our soul. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you today to admit that we are sinners. All of us, by nature of breathing today, have confessed that we don't have it all together. No one's better or worse than anyone else, but all of us have sinned differently in different ways and all are in need of a Savior. Today we admit that we're sinners and we confess our sin to you, even now knowing that you hear us and that nothing we could confess to you could shock you or your ears. You've already seen it, you already know it. Lord, we also come today to lay it down at the altar. To lay it down, not with an animal that would be burned, but on a cross where your son would perish. And know that when he was laid in the tomb, our sin was laid there with him. And when he rose, he walked out without it. That it has no more power over us to condemn us control us, to have dominion over us. And so today, we come admitting that we're sinners, believing that Jesus Christ has died and risen again so that we can have everlasting life. And we confess Him as Lord to follow after Him all the days of our life, to return again to that cross and empty tomb. Today, whatever we need to confess, whatever we need to do, we need to confess to someone, maybe come forward and talk to somebody. But ultimately, may we lay it down and know that you're able to put it to death and have it never rise up again to stand against us. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again and we place our trust in him. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, I surrender all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence. 
Thank you. 